You are listening to the Indiana Deer News Podcast, your number one resource for anything and everything that has to do with the wild deer herd of Indiana. On this episode, we're blessed to be joined by Mariah Bogus, your new Indiana deer biologist as of last fall. On this episode, we're going to talk about harvest reflections, takeaways of the 2020 season, deer management moving forward, CWD, and acorns. You're not going to want to miss this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. everybody welcome to this episode of the indiana deer news podcast i'm your host ty miller and i am joined with our new as of last october i believe was the official start time of uh the new deer biologist we've heard from joe we knew this was coming and uh finally schedules kind of aligned and i was pleased to hear from mariah that he was he had a moment to sit down and chat with us and uh welcome to the episode mariah i appreciate it ty i'm glad to be here and be able to talk with with you and all the other indiana deer hunters through this. All right. So this episode as a whole, I kind of want to take the first part of it and just get to know who you are. A lot of people out there, I'm still running across guys that they don't even know that Joe's no longer the deer biologist. Um, So can you just kind of give us a brief synopsis of who you are, you know, maybe some background, your education and experiences that kind of led you on the path that found you in uh, Indiana? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from North Carolina, and uh, I grew up there in on the western side of the state, kind of in the mountains, in a, a roll, really rolling hills kind of area. And uh, in fact, very similar to southern Indiana, um, right there on the edge of the Appalachians. And um, I, I didn't really have a traditional background in hunting um, up until about 10 years old. No one in my family hunted, and I picked it up on my own. Um, growing up in the country. And in, in fact, I, kind of what spurred it all is I found a, a deer shed accidentally. And uh, being a little kid, I didn't know what, you know, what, it, why there was a deer antler. I knew it was a deer antler, of course, but I didn't, didn't really know why. And I started doing some research and just became um, completely obsessed with, with shed hunting and deer. And I started deer hunting actually at the age of 13. So kind of got a late start. And, um, but really from that point on, I'd always known I wanted to do something in natural resources management. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, I was really interested in fisheries. But with that growing desire to learn more about deer and, and getting involved in deer hunting, I wanted to do something um, involving deer and wildlife management moving forward. And I was, was always really involved with habitat management projects on my family, like my family's property. And I would ask the neighbors to get permission to manage their properties and stuff. And I would go in, do forest stand improvement and prescribe fire and and do everything I could to make property uh, as appealing as I could um, to deer and and try to encourage um, wild turkey population around there, which was kind of dwindling. And, and that was, that was really me through, um, through high school. And then I did my undergrad in, uh, in wildlife science at North Carolina State University and uh, was there for four years. Really enjoyed that program, learned a lot, uh, and, and it's really good, you know, for anyone that's it's ever been involved with the wildlife science side, like the, the, the education side, you get a lot of background information in undergrad. And um, it was really good for just you know, broad, broadening interests and in, in, uh, in wildlife science and management. And so I did four years there. Then I went to Mississippi State University for my master's and I worked there um, uh, under two different professors in the deer lab um, doing research on deer interactions with oak trees. So basically looking at how prescribed fire and oak masting affects deer consumption of acorns and deer use underneath oak trees and then how that in turn affects the forest community, the plant community uh, into the future. And that was the, the basic outline of my thesis. I also did some side projects on Lone Star ticks and uh, whether or not prescribed fire can, can change their populations or, or their numbers in a forest. And, um, and that was just some, some work I did on the side. But I really enjoyed my time at Mississippi State and uh, 
was really involved with the deer lab there. And of course, if, if uh, anyone is familiar with Mississippi State Deer Lab, there's a podcast that um, um, Dr. Strickland and Damaris put out. And, and um, so I was always able to help, at least with the social media side of the deer lab and, and kind of putting that information out there and, and a little bit on the extension side and communicating with people who had questions um, to the deer lab and, and uh, practicing that skill a little bit. So it gave me an opportunity to, to interact with hunters uh, to interact with land managers, to sometimes give habitat management advice or, you know, consult for people a little bit. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that, that providing me kind of a, a, a I would say, a, a well-rounded experience in yeah. grad school. And I, I finished that up last May 2020. Um, and then I moved up to Indiana. And in fact, last summer, um, I spent the summer working for Purdue University on an integrated deer management project. So I, I, I knew I was going to be starting this job, um, starting the role of deer biologist in October. So I had a few months before that start date. So I, I came up and I worked for, for Purdue on that project, which allowed me to, to see parts of the state and do some research and, and actually kind of get my hands dirty on some of the on the ground research that's being done. Yeah. And and then that brought me to October when I started in this job. Awesome. So you knew when you graduated or was it just shortly after that this job I, was on the horizon? I knew when I graduated. I just had a little bit of time to wait. And uh, so I had I had a few months there to to move and got to do some traveling and, you know, go go hiking and camping and, and enjoy some a little bit of time off after grad school. But I was preparing to, to start uh, right at the beginning of deer season. That's incredible. And if we have time, we'll get into that acorn study. I know that was one of the things at the end, if we have time, I wanted to get into. But if, for those of you listening, you can uh, check out that episode on uh, episode 42 of uh, MSU Deer Lab, When Are Deer Attracted to Acorns? Yeah, I would love to talk about that sometime because it has not only implications for habitat management, but direct implications for deer hunting. In fact, I, the, the buck I shot this year in Indiana, I would attribute directly to the knowledge I learned from that project. And uh, so anyway, we can get to that if we have time, but I don't yeah. want to distract us. No, that's awesome. Um, so we are wrapping up, or we wrapped up a few months ago, the 2020 season, and you came in actually after the start of the year, you know, starting in reduction zones in September, and then you were here in October. Um what are some of the kind of overviews? I know you guys are probably still compiling a bunch of data, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah, so we're, we're looking at all the data right now to publish the deer report. So that's in the works uh, as we speak, actually, mm -hmm. uh, so we can get that out to folks and that, as well as the, the county deer sheets. But looking at the season in review, um, of course, it seemed like, uh, in, in actually, if we think about um, last year and in, 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 in the pandemic, a lot of people had had more time than usual. Yes. Whether they were, they were working at home, you know, out of the office, all that. And in fact, I noticed that last turkey season in Mississippi on the public land I was hunting, uh, it seemed like there was people everywhere. It, it was tough to find a spot. And we, we've seen this carry over in the deer season where we saw a slight increase in the number of, of licensed deer hunters. And it actually wasn't that that large of an increase percentage wise but what we did see last year was an increase in overall harvest so i, I think when we crunch the numbers we're going to see the success rates went up a little bit across the state and and we're talking about an increase in harvest statewide of about eight percent and we haven't seen a harvest this this large so last year it was 124,000 deer and uh, we haven't seen a harvest that large since 2015 and we it, we're still we've always been within about 10,000 of that mark, but it, it fluctuates around there. So last year was it was a pretty high harvest year. And, um, you know, for me, I, I've been looking at the, the state and trying to pick apart, you know, what's driving that increase. And um, so, of course, 2019, there was EHD in, in southern Indiana mm -hmm. and a lot of southern Indiana counties. Yep. And. I, I, it's probably still affecting harvest a little bit, or it probably did uh, slightly in 2020, because when we look at the state, southern Indiana did not increase in harvest. It pretty much held steady. Most of those counties 
you know, averaging across the line. They've held steady for several years now, but that 8% increase is really being driven by Northern Indiana. And when you look at the top 20, 30 counties or so in Northern Indiana, you know, they, they're, they've increased in harvest a, a lot, but last year wasn't an anomaly either. Those, a lot of those counties have been increasing for some time now, since 2016, 2017, there's been several counties that have just slowly been trending upward. So counties like Steuben and, and Noble County, and, uh, and they've just been slowly trending upward and really last year just continue that trend. So I think, you know, in, in Northern Indiana, we're seeing an increase in harvest and, and last year wasn't, wasn't catching anybody off guard with that. That was pretty much has been the, the trend. And then Southern Indiana has been pretty much stable. So does that feed into, I know for those who have listened to the episode with Joe, he spoke to, you know, the antler list last year was kind of one of the first years that everybody could uh, participate in that late season antler list season. We haven't been able to do that for a while, unless you're in a County. Um, one of the things was it, it appeared all the historical data when a County would slip out of that and then slip back, it didn't make a huge impact in the harvest with the anomaly that is, COVID-19 that affected 2020 and maybe the time and effort and maybe the surveys are going to assist you in understanding that does it kind of still or is it starting to look like again that late antler list is not necessarily or I should say the quota numbers are not necessarily driving the harvest like some people assume right yeah I would agree with that because you know when we look at what counties have increased harvest and what counties haven't the trends that we see are regional trends or or even on the deer management unit scale and not not like one county compared to another because the bonus analyst quota is one higher in, in a in you know neighboring county um, or even the the special late antlerless season so as far as data on the special late antlerless season we're still crunching those numbers um actually uh, this week and next looking at total harvest and, and getting that all compiled so i can't speak too much to that right now. But yeah, you're right. You know, in years past, the any change in harvest associated with that season has been really low, usually around five or 6% for a county, which, um, you know, when we look at the overall increase in the state this year, we're talking 8%. So um, a, a lot of times, you know, when, when we look at the actual harvest by season, it's not, it's not that, that, season is not necessarily driving total harvest in a county. Uh, we just see uh, what appears to be some people switching. You know, some people maybe will um, decide not to shoot a doe during firearms and they might shoot one later, you know, in that special late antler season. And it's really hard to, to capture that, you know, and except just looking at total harvest. So I think, I think looking at the total harvest and change from year to year um, or between counties is a great way to tease that out. And, and looking at it preliminarily, there doesn't seem to be any um, direct effect yet, but I'm still looking at that data. And, and we also have a lot of survey data that we're looking at for that season. So there's more to come there, uh, surveying you know, people and, and seeing what hunters and non-hunters think about it. And then also looking at those numbers here in a little bit. And I, and I would assume, speaking to those surveys, you know, one of the big things that you always hear that's uh, uh, an indice for you guys to work off of is that effort the effort right. effort so i would assume maybe you guys are going to see a change in that given that maybe you know joe who has usually just two days to hunt well now he was off work and he had 14 and maybe he there's a, that effort statistic if you guys see, you may see a big swing in that who knows yeah we hope so you know we, we hope that if there is a change in that we can detect it yeah and that's where yeah that effort is so important because otherwise you're just looking at numbers and if i hunt like, like to your point, if I hunt one day, one year versus 20, the next it's, it, I'm, I'm naturally going to have a higher chance of being successful if I'm in the woods more. So we yeah. always qualify our data or look at it a couple of different ways in, 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 uh, dividing by the total effort is, is how we, um, how we compare it with that effort. Sure. Sure. Speaking to the surveys, you know, I, I expressed my frustration to the hunters that listen to this all the time and, and to Joe and everybody who will listen for a minute. We need to do better. You know, it's, it, I'm kind of embarrassed at the low turnout. You know, it, it is a lot in terms of a number, but percentage-wise, we usually hover somewhere around that 5 to 15% range. 
do you know roughly did we have a better turnout it seems to be growing each year over the last three um so when we're when we're looking at the deer management survey um so so we have a couple different surveys so i guess i'll start with that yeah. the deer management survey we just sent out beginning of february so uh we're about to pull all that data in and start uh crunching those numbers and we have we have right about 26,000 uh, people who responded to that survey. So when you look at the total number of people, it's pretty good. I mean, there, there's a lot of responses, but it could be better. You know, there's there's a whole lot of people who haven't responded. And in fact, I, we're, we're a little bit lower than the last couple of years, and we might be trending down slightly. And, and um, you know, we try to make that survey as short as we can. And there's, when we sit down and look at it, like, we did this year and I, and I had some ideas and, and Joe had some ideas and, and we have a standard survey and we're, we're trying to shave it down to the most important things. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of things we want to ask hunters and we want to get input and it's easy to say, oh, oh, I also want to know this and I also want to know what to think about this. And, um, and so I, what I'm getting at is we try to make it as short as we can. But one, you know, one comment that I've heard is that it's a little lengthy and, and some folks don't want to fill it out because it's lengthy. And uh, so I would just say that, you know, to anyone listening, we 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 use that data and um, every response is helpful. So if you're willing to do it and, and take the time we we want you to fill it out. And if you have issues, you email the, the deer survey email and uh, and I monitor that and get and, and get people, you know, on the right track if they're having technical difficulties or anything like that. And we try to. Um, we really, we really try to make it as easy as we can for people, but it's, you know, it still takes a little bit of effort. And I understand that. Sure. I, I will say just my one minute soapbox to anybody listening. If you have time to post on Facebook, you probably got time to do this survey. And we seem to be very comfortable punching in our keyboards and stuff. It really doesn't take that long. It takes a few minutes. You need to devote a little bit of time, but you really can work through it pretty quick. And like Mariah said, if you have any difficulties or, or troubles, they're there ready, ready and willing to help. So uh, the next uh, uh, thing that I wanted to talk about was just kind of the overall uh, statewide deer management. Um, Joe spoke to kind of his approach to it and everything, but hey, you're you're a new biologist. You bring new ideas, new concepts, possibly. Is is there any differences or uh, change that's occurring just naturally with what's going on on the Indiana landscape, but then also just kind of the introduction of of yourself into the process? So I, I, to this point, I don't think that, um, I don't think there's going to be any big drastic changes because mm -hmm. I don't believe there needs to be, but there are projects that we're working on. And in fact, a lot of things, a lot of changes that may come in years, you know, in coming years, if, if we keep working on, you know, one project or another, and, and it becomes apparent that this is a good move for us. Some of those have already been in the works for a few years with, with Joe and, and there's just been data being gathered and we're trying to, to, you know, find an answer to a problem or an answer to a question and how we can, um, we can improve deer management, you know, the data that we're gathering, how we're analyzing that data or how we can simplify the, um, you know, regulations for hunters or any of that. A lot of these are questions that have been in the works for a while. And so, you know, when I came there, there were things that, that needed to be done and, and Joe's been working on. And then, you know, now I'm kind of taking over um, some of those projects, but Joe's still very involved uh, with a lot of the deer management. So, and, and we work very well together. I, I really enjoy it where we're headed, but, you know, of course I, I come with different, uh, a, a different background, just being from the Southeast. And I think, you know, probably the biggest pro to that is just, I've seen how other States, um, you know, we're all from, or Joe and I are both from different states, right? Mm -hmm. And from the South. And so when you come from a different state, you see how a different agency is doing things and you see what works and what doesn't. And so I think bringing all that, the, that knowledge together, all those ideas together is beneficial. And so hopefully that helps us come to um, a resolution on, on, you know, these projects sooner, if, if we're going to make any changes, but I don't expect that there's nothing that, you know, I, I walked in and I was like, Oh, well, this needs to end today. no, I, we're really on a good track um, with Indiana, with, in Indiana with deer management. And 
for the, over the last few years, there's been a trend in the increase of annual data being collected. There's been a, you know, the deer management survey for one, the after hunt survey, these new data gathering tools. And every year that we gather that data, it becomes more powerful because we can see the trends in that data over time. And so, you know, we have over the last few years, these different data sources being added. And I would like to add a couple more, uh, more on the biological side or, you know, data from deer that are being harvested within the state. And so that's something for me to solve is, is you know, these questions I have, or I'd like to gather this data or that. Um, but overall, no, I, I don't expect there to be any big drastic changes to deer management, just an improvement on the data we're getting because every single piece of data, whether it's human dimensions data or biological data, it all can help. Um, it, it can all help in our decisions, you know, any kind of, any kind of management decision, whether that's bonus antlerless quotas or something else, yeah. it all is very helpful. And so I hope to add to the data that we're collecting in the future and keep the current projects rolling on as they are. Good deal. And now you mentioned something in there that I know I've had guests or uh, followers ask about. You you mentioned there really briefly simplifying the regulations. I, you, I know you can't speak to specific points, but that is something that you guys are hearing because I know I'm hearing it as well. Yeah, we, you know, we get we get questions um, quite frequently. We have the deer hotline where folks can call and ask yeah. questions. And so, you know, I, I constantly talk to the gentleman who answers um, the phone there and, and hear what questions are coming in. And Joe does, too. And so we know, you know, we it's on our radar. What are problems? And so those are things that, you know, we're constantly looking at how we can address. And so if if there's some way to not make any drastic changes that aren't going to, you know, change harvest in a, in a big way, uh, affect the population or affect hunter opportunity, but it can simplify everybody's lives a little bit. We, we would be all about that. So, you know, that's something that's definitely on our radar because we know, we know there can be complications, whether, you know, with regulations or seasons or, or licenses and all that. And so, you know, it, it's always something that works that's on our mind. And so I think moving forward, there's room for, for simplification. And I would say that for probably for any state is, um, you know, after you get down the road a couple of years, you might look back retrospectively and say, hey, we can we can make two changes here to make it just one one thing, yeah. um, you know, or or change these two rules and make it one rule and, and, it, and it simplify the language and get rid of two sentences and make it one that type of simplification. So um, it's definitely something that is is on our radar and something that we will be looking at in the future. Good deal. Um, I, at this point, I'd like to ask a follower and listener question that was submitted on a forum that I'm a member of. Now, this, I have a feeling we're going to have to kind of push the pause button on this and maybe have you back later because you're still compiling the data. Um, but this gentleman wanted to know if you can speak to at all or categorize what the current mode or objective in the state's deer management approach is. Um, example that he gave was, you know, a few years back, we were in a strategic and planned reduction mode and we're no longer in that but could you categorize or is there a, a current mode that we're we're in so you know i think i think you could you could look at modes if, if you uh if you want to qualify them in like three different categories you could say you're wanting to increase the population uh stabilize or keep it level or decrease. Mm -hmm. And right now I would say we're, we're stabilized. We're wanting to maintain the population where it is. Um, but we're also managing it strategically. And so what I mean by that is that across the state, and this has always been apparent. And, and one thing that's really cool about Indiana deer management, and, and unlike, you know, some states, you just have a set number of tags, you buy your license and you shoot however many bucks and however many does, it doesn't matter where you're at. But in Indiana, you know, we set um, harvest limits by, on does by county, and then we have deer reduction zones where it's adjusted. And so that's something that is really valuable to our management um, here in the state already. And I think moving forward, we're, gonna, we're going to continue on with that where we're looking at management at a fine scale approach. And so, you know, instead of just treating the whole state like a blanket, we're looking at county by county or deer management unit to deer management unit within these these uh, road corridors where there's a lot of traffic and, and deer vehicle incidents and how we can address those issues 
and and make changes on that level. And so, you know, speaking to that, like, how do we do that? So the Purdue Integrated Deer Management Project is something that's been ongoing for several years now and is continuing on. And that, that's something that in the future, hopefully we can use to model the population in the state. And there's, we have a lot of other research going on and that will be, be beginning in the future. And all of it is to better our current management, but none of it is, none of it is aimed at reducing or increasing the deer population. It's more about how can we look at what we have now and identify the issues or, you know, whether that's, you know, a, a pocket of, 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 um, of an area where they, whether, you know, maybe the, the deer harvest is too high or it's an area where there's too many deer vehicle collisions. How can we better hone in on that and make adjustments small scale to address those issues without affecting, you know, in a county, it, it doesn't make sense to reduce the deer population across the county because you have deer vehicle collisions on a mile stretch of road. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, our approach is let's try to increase hunter opportunity to shoot those deer before they run into the road and get hit without affecting the rest of the county. Yep. And so I would say just moving forward, yeah, we plan to continue on with that strategic approach to deer management. Which I am very appreciative of. I'm not a fan of, you know, hey, this county has an issue with vehicle collisions, but is there a corridor inside of it? I've loved it once we started going to those more strategic corridors that you see. Um, the county that I hunt in, the property that I own actually is in a portion of a reduction zone in a county that otherwise is not. And it's definitely very obvious moving to and from in and out of those those zones that there's a big big difference um you mentioned deer management units and for some people that may be a foreign concept because they think of just counties now for those of you who know the integrated deer study actually broke the state into 10 um, different research management units does the state is that is that where they got those 10 mariah or do you guys operate in a different uh number of them so those 10 were identified by the integrated deer management project for us and so what it basically uh, it helps lump some counties together because of so like with the survey responses like the after hunt survey mm -hmm. or the deer management survey um, when we collect data especially with after hunt survey we're, we're, there, there's some biological data where we ask questions about people's deer you know like for instance the the age of the deer they shot we don't get enough responses for a single county for it to have any statistical significance or really be usable data. But lumping it into uh, groups of counties allows that data to be examined so that you can see trends or compare region to region. Uh, but instead of just arbitrarily picking counties, what this project did was lump together counties that made sense based on land cover type, demographics, the deer population there, everything that matters to deer management uh, was identified and those were factors that went into that model that that lumped those counties together so that that allows us to extract you know data that's specific to um you know let's say stark and fulton county Pulaski county and put those together to, because there's again there's power in numbers and sometimes with some of our data unfortunately we can't get enough deer you know in that one county yeah but grouping it together and, and examining it at the DMU level, the deer management unit level, allows us to see those trends, which in science, even the smallest trend can be super important. And if you have enough data, you can you can look at those trends and see if they're if they're truly significant. And so that's where those DMUs really come in handy for us. It basically takes small sample sizes that by themselves, for those listening, the the more data you have in a sample size, the more dependent you can and the more you can rely on the what it's indicating correct absolutely yeah, yeah. If, you know if we have five five deer from stark county and each one falls into you know one's a one and a half year old one's a two and a half year old and, and so on yeah it doesn't tell us anything but if we can we can look at a few hundred deer for the dmu then that would really tell us something yeah it's like a research project if you were doing something on 30 year old men and you only had 10 in one county but you could broaden that to 100 across Absolutely. other sample sizes just kind of draw a parallel for those listening um i had one more uh question that fits right now for you mariah from somebody and that is what are your thoughts on public opinion input i know this is this can cause a hot button issue sometimes on the forums and discussion when opposing you know i always say if you get two hunters in a room 
you have three opinions. So right. <laughs> this right. gentleman said, what are your thoughts on public opinion input? When it appears to be purely anecdotal and void of measurable data, how do you formulate or apply a value to it versus, say, maybe measurable inputs like the age or things of that that you collect on, on data? Right. So, you know, what, this, what really comes to mind first with this is uh, survey, survey data where uh, mm -hmm. we ask your assessment of the deer population where you live. And are there too many deer? Are there too little? And um, and so that you know, I, I alluded to this earlier. How there's power in repetition of a survey or gathering any data, because as that data set grows, you can see trends. And so everyone has their own biases. I personally have my own biases. If I were to fill out any survey, it doesn't matter. You know, if I were to fill it out on how I how I like my food at a restaurant, I'm going to have my own innate biases about that restaurant about everything mm -hmm. and the same goes for you know for deer hunters and we have our own biases we would love to see more deer i would love to you know if, if i'm sitting there hunting and i see a couple of deer you know something under my skin tells me well it would have been great if i had just seen one or two more um that's that's always there and the desire to see bigger deer that there's some of these innate biases that if you were to look at the data in in you look at across the state it would just be the same answer over and over again um, people who don't deer hunt don't want deer. People who deer hunt want deer. And so we see this being pulled in, in both directions, you know, because there's the people that the, us, the stewards, love deer. We, we enjoy deer hunting. We enjoy observing deer. We enjoy just everything about deer. And so it adds quality to our lives to have deer on the landscape. But for the person down the road who has rose bushes in the yard, deer are terrible. They eat their rose bushes. They run out in front of their car. They total their car. They're a risk to their to their life in the end. So to them, they don't want deer. So that that uh, that all weighs their opinion on whether there's enough deer or too little deer. And so, it, you know, it's a good point. If you were to look at just how someone rates something, like whether or not there's enough deer or whether they're big enough, it would be biased one way or another. And it wouldn't necessarily be an accurate assessment of the population. However, when we gather 26,000 responses every year and we follow that by year, if there's a trend, you know, if 70% of the people say that there's too many deer, you know, in, in Marion County, and then the next, you know, it slowly trends down until a couple years later, only 50 people are saying that, or 50% of the people are saying that then that would indicate that, that likely the population is decreasing. But that one year of data doesn't tell you hardly anything. It just tells you what's your baseline. So that a lot of that opinion data is super helpful for, for one, it, it does help us to gauge what hunters are thinking of overall management. And so that there is, there's value in that. Like if we're gonna make a decision on you know, bonus antlerless quotas or something, that's something we can look at and just, we can gauge one county to another what what is the overall opinion of this but where the real power comes is in year to year comparing how that opinion changes from year to year over that huge sample size of 26,000 respondents that there's a lot of power in that and with that big of a sample size we can tease out those trends and we can see and we can use that as a barometer of one of many many barometers we have to indicate whether or not that deer population may be increasing or decreasing. And of course, we, we combine that with biological data too and, 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 uh, and other survey data. But that's really where, that, that's really the best way to tease out data that may be anecdotal and may be biased is to look and see how that, that trend changes over time. Gotcha. Because once you start tracking the trends, you really begin to give value to that data over a set period of time. And you can... I like that, and and I think I think people will appreciate hearing that because it's a way we know our voices are being heard, but maybe not necessarily in a moment. An opinion by and of itself may not express something that you need to make a decision on or an, or, or an amendment or a change. But if those opinions show a trend in two or three years, then obviously something has changed, and maybe you need to change something. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, the deer management survey is a prime example, and that's what I was using there. And uh, as we've seen a very slow decrease in the number of respondents, 
we still have, we still get plenty of respondents, but we would we would love to keep that number stable because it's easy to get fatigue where you fill out the same survey every year and it, it and it feels like nothing has happened. But you you can rest assured every single year that we gather that data, it adds power to even the data we collected three years ago. You know this data adds power to that data and and that and that to this because we're able to tease out those trends. So it's even though it's it it seems repetitive. That is, that's honestly what gives that data so much power. It's just that it's, it's repeated every year and that's how we observe those trends. So um, to everyone who fills out the deer management survey, we, we thank you and mm-hmm. we appreciate it. And that's going to keep continuing on well into the future. Yep. And I, I, I will relay something that I've told other people, even if your situation, everything you've observed, say in 2020 is no different than in 2019. I've heard people say, well, nothing's really changed. I'm not going to fill out the survey again these trends are what helps Mariah and anybody helping him make decisions. So even if nothing's changed, even if you have nothing that's uh, that you're going to change your observations in the survey, take the time. If you have it, do the survey because it is valuable. It's a valuable resource for them to make decisions on. Um, Speaking of, you know, surveys, and then that kind of goes right into the reports then that we, we all get released to us. um, The deer report, to be honest with you, Joe spoiled us with lots of data compared to what we used to see. Our deer reports used to be very brief and short, and and I'm a data nerd, so I've loved the county sheets and just the reports in general. Um, Is that still going to continue, Mariah? And is there anything else or new that maybe you'd like to see delivered in the report that may not be there quite yet? Maybe you're working on it into the future? So the the report... Both the, the county data sheets and the due report is going to continue the same. So that all that data is going to be available to people. And we're, we're planning that to continue that because we know there's a lot of value in that to people. Everyone enjoys seeing how their specific county has changed over time. And then, of course, statewide, which is in the deer report. So that is all planned to continue into the future. And the hope is, you know, we would love to make improvements on that. Uh, I can't really speak to that now, um, but uh, just know that there is interest, you know, in improving even how we share that data so that it's more user friendly to people. Um, and so, you know, instead of just having a published graph in front of you, maybe uh, being able to to look at that data um, and and play with it a little bit and and be able to analyze different counties side by side and and that type of approach uh, would be super cool to to be able to provide to people. And so. Uh, within the the you know w- within the office here for for deer research, that's something that is is on the table. Is that not only are we trying to keep the deer survey the same or the the deer report the same, and the deer county data sheets, but we're trying to add to that and enrich um, what is available to people. So I can't really speak to what may be coming because there's there's nothing for sure yet. But just know that um, I really hope that you know here in the next few months or within the next year, we have something super cool for people. And I know myself being a deer nerd, I'm looking forward to to hopefully having even more ways to to look at the the same data, you know, and and crunch the numbers and look at, um, look at trends and look at where I hunt and and everything. So I'm excited about it. And I think other folks will be too, if we can pull it off. Yeah. And I liken it too, for those of you who listened to the last episode of Indiana Deer News podcast, I mean, I was literally able to in live time, hone into a county or hone into the statewide and adjust it by firearms used or archery equipment. And that, that was something we couldn't do just a year ago. So um, we appreciate all the advancements and the things that you guys are doing to deliver data in a better way. So on behalf of hunters, thank you. Um, There is one topic that I know is kind of a hot button topic and we're kind of monitoring for it and everything. It's the chronic wasting disease. Has there been any, updates um i know it hasn't been detected as of yet right right yeah so it hasn't been detected in indiana as of uh as of now of course you know big news in the cwd world was the the first detection of a wild deer in ohio and it was actually um, quite a ways from our border um it was it was over 50 miles from our border so it's not on top of us over on that side but it's just another bordering state that has found CWD and wild deer. And so we're continuing our efforts this year. Of course, um, 
we continued surveillance in the same zones that we did over the last three years, and that was um, northwest and northeast Indiana, particularly a really focused effort in those counties to try to, um, to, to sample those populations for chronic wasting disease. And again, uh, we have not detected it there. We also collect you know, any sick deer reports, which is something new in the last year. And I'm not sure if Joe talked about this on the last podcast, is the ability for folks to report sick deer. And, and that's something new, uh, just the online format of that to be able to report uh, a sick deer on the DNR website. And that allows us real time to respond to sick deer calls. So like with EHD in summer, we're able to monitor those daily as those reports are coming in through this online survey um, on our website. And when those reports are put in, we, we're all immediately notified in the, the deer and health program. And so we know right away. And that's also another way we respond to potential chronic wasting disease deer or deer that you know, we, we suspect because of their, the signs they're displaying of, of having chronic wasting disease. So that continued this year. We tested a lot of those deer that were sick or had died um, and, and weren't well, and none of those came back positive either. So we tested a little over 900 deer across the state in the 2020 to 2021 deer season. And uh, again, no positives. So continuing forward next year, uh, we're definitely wanting to change some of the ways that we do surveillance within the state. Again, there's a lot of things in the works there and uh, no big foundational changes to our desire to, to try to find CWD if it is in Indiana. It's just that we're, we're evaluating new ways to identify where CWD could be in the state and look in counties that maybe we haven't done surveillance in the past. So, you know, we, we've been hitting the same 11 counties over and over for several years. And so now we're getting to the point where we're comfortable stepping away from those for a little bit and maybe uh, looking in other parts of the state and, and taking a little bit more comprehensive look at Indiana counties and surveying those populations for CWD here in the 2021 season and moving into the future. And for those of you listening, I will put a link in the show notes to the page that kind of discusses how to, to report sick and dead wildlife reporting. It's it's really on, it's on the IN.gov website uh, in the DNR section, and I'll put that in the show links. It's really easy. You click on a link, and it brings up. You have to put your name in and such, and very simple process to get that started. I believe there's a number as well, Mariah. Is there, or is it just that online report? We're just using the on online report. Um, currently and and so another thing you know if anyone has ever looked at our EHD page the map that shows on there that shows the number of suspected EHD cases by county and of course that will start updating next summer when EHD could be affecting the population those those numbers actually come directly from this this reporting form and and we look at those at the back end and we'll do site visits or even go and test those deer for EHD to then feed those numbers into that map. So that's how people can contribute to another population monitoring um, strategy that we're taking. And, and that's looking at just total suspected mortality from hemorrhagic disease. And so reporting through that sick or dead wildlife form is a great way to, to help us there. You know, also for CWD, if you see a deer that's behaving very oddly, it's another, another place to report that. And, and again, you know, I get that report immediately, real time, within a few seconds. And if it's uh, an animal that requires a site visit, I'll generally will be calling that person pretty quickly to get into contact with them and uh, try to arrange a site visit. Good deal. So I'm assuming that's just trying to throw a scenario out there to somebody. If you come across a deer, contacting your local DNR officer is not necessarily the process you guys want us to go through. You'd, you'd prefer this wildlife sick or dead animal report generate it correct? correct yeah okay if the if the animal is displaying signs of, of any kind of disease you know if it's acting oddly or it's emaciated or um it's obviously dying and uh it wasn't struck by a vehicle then those should all be reported through the sick or dead animal form excellent um and just so everybody knows that is listening michigan has had it discovered illinois has it ohio kentucky has not yet have they or have they 
Correct. They have not detected okay. a free range deer or, or a cat to serve it to my knowledge. Gotcha. So we're almost surrounded. Um, and unfortunately most people say it's just a matter of time before we find it. Not if we find it, but, uh, Let's not doom and gloom the podcast. Uh, do you have time, Mariah, to kind of just share with those listening? I found it fascinating listening to your uh, the acorn monitoring study that you did. Um, if you have a few minutes and you'd like to go into that, I'd love to hear it. Absolutely, yeah. So this uh, was part of my thesis. And um, so basically the, the questions we wanted to answer with this project were uh, whether or not masting oaks, so oaks producing a lot of acorns in the year, whether or not those masting oaks affected the plant community underneath them, whether or not, well, I, I should back up. I, I didn't explain that well. Whether or not masting oaks affects deer use of that patch of cover, of that patch of forest, and whether or not, because deer are responding to those acorns underneath the tree, if whether or not those deer uh, affect the plant community underneath those trees or the growing oak seedlings. So uh, what we were trying, what what we were trying to look at was compare oaks that had acorns under them and ones that didn't. And as you can imagine, it's pretty difficult in a controlled study in a given year to find oaks of the same species, one that's producing a bumper crop and one that's not. And uh, tried to do that on the front end, you know, doing surveys of the the tree canopies and trying to identify trees that didn't have acorns and ones that did. Um, but pretty much all of them just just had a few acorns. And so what I had to do for my project was simulate a mast year. So I collected acorns and stored them in refrigeration until um, acorns would have been dropping on my study site. And I had 50 trees and 25 of them would receive these additional acorns underneath and 25 wouldn't. So I monitored the understory uh, below these trees with trail cameras across all of those trees, all 50 of them. And at the beginning of the study, I took acorns, uh, let's see, uh, 5,000 acorns and distributed them under, would, would distribute, a, distribute them under one tree. So it'd be 5,000 acorns per tree. And so to do that, you know, I was trying to make it as accurate as possible to masting. So it wasn't a pile of acorns. I would distribute them by hand underneath the tree. So there was a, 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 um, a even layer of acorns spread out underneath these, these red oaks. And then they would always be paired with a tree close by that didn't receive additional acorns. So I did that beginning in November in Mississippi. And reason that it was kind of late, at least compared to our timing is that a lot of the oaks don't start dropping in Mississippi until around that November timeframe. And so I was using red oak acorns um, to put out underneath these trees, uh, specifically Schumard oak acorns, which isn't a super common oak tree in Indiana. There's a few in southern Indiana. Quite, it's uh, quite common in the south in Alabama and Mississippi, but it's uh, a bottomland red oak that has a, a fairly large acorn that deer seem to like pretty well. So I put out those acorns beginning of November, and I ran my trail cameras underneath those acorns, just observing deer from November all the way through the end of March. <laughs> and so at the end of that time frame, I pulled my cameras because that's when it was just getting warm enough that those acorns would be germinating. And so deer wouldn't be eating those acorns then. And if they had survived you know, to that point, those acorns, they would be able to germinate and grow into future oak trees. So at that point, uh, I did vegetation surveys underneath the trees. I also had um, a red oak seedling and a non-red oak seedling. Um, the non-red oak I was using was a black gum is the, is the species. And I had one of each underneath these oak trees and then I monitored them for deer herbivory. So I measured how much of those stems the deer ate uh, basically from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And then I made comparisons all at the end, but made comparisons all at the end on the vegetation side. Um, so getting into the results, and I'm trying to explain this the best as possible. It's, it's already getting cloudy in my mind in the, in, in the past. The one that stands out to me, the, the result that really stands out to me, and I think is, is the takeaway for most deer hunters, is that these acorns were put out at the beginning of November. The peak of the red on this, this property is mid-December. 
So just to put it in Indiana terms, we're back up one month roughly. Right, right. Everything is delayed about a month there. And so those acorns sat for the most part November and December, and it wasn't until really late December and January the deer started eating them very heavily. And by mid-December, sorry, mid-January into the beginning of February, deer use underneath those oak trees that had acorns peaked. And um, so overall, there were, we, we saw a great increase in deer use underneath those oak trees that had acorns versus those that didn't. And aside from the research, just my personal curiosity, I, I teased out adult bucks versus the does and fawns and everything else that visited those trees. And we even saw an increase in adult bucks use underneath these oak trees and daylight use. So there were more opportunities to shoot a deer in daylight and even a, an adult buck in daylight underneath these oak trees. So again, you know, at the end of the day, it kind of makes sense. We all know that the deer like acorns. And so, you know, great. We showed the deer ate acorns. The, but the interesting thing about it, the thing that I really took away from it, was the deer use peaked so far after the acorns dropped. You know, the, the acorns had been on the ground two and a half months by the time the deer were really hammering them. And kind of goes against the uh, historical knowledge that I've always heard, at least growing up in, in strategy, people talk about hunting white oaks as soon as they drop, which is effective. I've shot deer that way, but oftentimes ignored is, is the red oak acorns. And, and it's something I have paid more attention to the last few years. And like this year hunting, I, 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 I was, it was actually muzzleloader season and I hadn't shot a buck uh, here. And I had shot a doe. I, I wanted to shoot a buck my first season in Indiana. And uh, anyway, it was December. And so, you know, post-rut deer are pretty much on a, a bed-to-feed pattern. And so I ended up just doing a lot of walking and uh, in big patches of timber and found some northern red oaks that were dropping heavily. Or it had dropped heavily. So they, they were, acorns were already on the ground. This is December. And the deer were just wearing them out. And uh, I mean, you know, it looks like turkeys have been scratched underneath these trees, but it was actually just deer just kicking up the leaves. So I ended up hunting that spot a couple of times and shot a, shot a buck. Uh, I think my third sit there or something. And, and um, anyway, it turned out to be a very effective um, hunting strategy this year. And I've, I've since followed it up postseason, monitoring these same oak trees and watching the bachelor groups that have been visiting them and now they're shedding their antlers and I found a few sheds under them and um, it, it really just kind of drives home the point to me that red oak acorns are very important to deer and they're also very important in winter which I think is has always been overlooked at least by me up until the last couple of years and uh, I know now if I'm walking a patch of timber, you know, late, late winter in the last few weeks, if I see a northern red oak specifically or a scarlet oak, I always go and check the understory. I always check the, uh, the leaf litter under them. And almost always there either was acorns there and they've, they've all been eaten up and it's, it's kicked up or the deer are actively still eating there. And uh, I, I would, I would, uh, I guess, just pass that on to anyone who's hunting, especially in southern Indiana, where we have a lot of of upland forest it yeah. can be very effective to, to find those northern red oaks or those scarlet oaks i know i noticed the the pin oaks on one of my properties always get hit later than any of the whites um it just seems to be that case now do you know mariah is it, it i know the tannin levels in the red oaks are typically higher and that's what causes them to stay i don't know how you want to say it viable or palatable longer mm -hmm. do you did, did any part of your research touch on were the tannin levels dropping when they started to consume them or is that a step in the process that nobody's really ever observed so i wish that i had measured that because i've had that question a few times since so i've, I've dug in the literature a little bit about it trying to, to answer that question and several folks have followed acorns like they'll, they'll take acorns set them out you know red oak acorns and measure the tannin levels throughout winter and and they Tan levels really don't change in in acorns, like they don't leach out. Um, and then also, interestingly, there's so there, there's there's kind of a mixture of results on the tannin levels of red oak to white oak. In fact, I was just looking 
at a recent uh, research project last week that just came out, and they did some analyses of different oak species or acorn species, and they found that northern red oak actually had lower tannin levels than white oak, at least in that experiment. So, what, it's, do you know what white oak they were using? It, it was it was uh, straight up white oak, Quercus okay. alba, yep. and and they were comparing it to northern red oak, um, Quercus rubra. Wow. And, and a straight comparison, and 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 uh, northern red oak slightly beat it out in that project in, in for that project. So it's, you know, I, I think there's a lot of variation, and so there's there's maybe not necessarily a a uh, steady rule on that point of the tannin level. So. It, it probably varies by tree. It probably varies by site a little bit, or even the, like the genetic strain of that that forest. And um, so it's not necessarily a, a steadfast rule, but you know, one explanation for this. And 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 uh, I won't take up any more of your time on this, but I I love talking about this. I was gonna say you're in my groove, so yeah. Yeah, I love it. I uh, I love thinking about deer. I love deer ecology. I love thinking about how deer use the landscape and. Um, and so deer are, they're not a grazer. They're, they're, they're not a browser per se. They're not classified as that. They are a, a concentrate selector. So they peruse the landscape eating the most nutritious, oftentimes the most nutritious at least, but they, they, they select the parts of plant and they select the plant species that they need. So in a lot of instances, that's the growing tip of of whatever forb that they're they're seeking out because it's super nutritious, maybe in summer. But they're constantly balancing the their microbiome within their stomach. They're constantly balancing the tannins in their stomach, the other um, like the phenols, all the other compounds that can inhibit digestion. They constantly are balancing um, how much of one thing they have or another, and so. Even if you look in the literature, there, there's there's really no instances of deer eating just one food. Even when deer are really eating acorns heavy, in uh, in projects that have looked at rumen contents, it's still only like 80% of their diet. They're always they always supplement it with something because deer deer are not built to eat just one thing. And so, I think you know, and this is just in the in the world of deer research, we're always trying to find these answers. And, and I've I've done it with this oak ideas i'm like why are deer eating these oaks like what is it that's so nutritious about these oaks but when we look at acorns they're they're pretty high in carbs they're especially red oaks are super high in fats they have a lot of calories and so they're an ideal winter food source and and uh you know they're a great source of energy but they have tannins so is that's usually the that's usually where a lot of us get caught up is like why would deer eat something that has tannins in it but if you do a nutritional analysis of almost any growing twig or forb that deer eat on the landscape, like, like forbs, like uh, common ragweed, some of these forbs that we know deer love that they always eat, those plant tissues have a lot of tannins in them. They have a lot of phenols. Those yep. are all plant compounds that those plants fix in their tissue to, to basically try to make herbivores not eat them. But deer are so cool that they've adapted that they have these proteins in their saliva that bind with those tannins and so that they can eat these foods and those tannins don't inhibit their digestion. And uh, so anyway, I say all that to say, I don't know that the, I, I'm not so sure that the, uh, the selection for white oaks over red oaks is driven by tannin levels. It may just be preference flavor it could just be that white oaks are only available for a week or two out of the year before they germinate before so they deer, germinate yeah yeah deer have to eat them then i'm not sure i would love to ask a deer sometime which we right and which we know deer are highly adaptive so if they have their choice between the white oak acorns that they know are going to be gone in a week or two or the red ones right. that they know are going to last i mean right they're not and dumb critters that's for sure they're not and their their microflora in their stomach adapt slowly to the foods that they're eating yep. and so it makes perfect sense that as red oaks are introduced into their diet they would slowly ramp up their uh, their uh, consumption of them until they would peak at some point in winter and they would probably stay at that peak consumption of that food until it's not it's no longer available to them and anecdotally the last couple of weeks a lot of trees i've been following like oak trees they're starting to get eaten up where deer are starting to slack off, but there's no acorns left under them anymore. And, and they're sh shifting to other food sources. So 
um, deer are really cool. And I, I think sometimes we try to simplify their diet or what they want to eat a little too much. Right. And uh, at the end of the day, they want something really good and they want something that maybe isn't so nutritious and it's all, it all adds to the balance within their gut. And, and, it, and it, that changes, of course, throughout the year as different foods are available to them. Yep, which is why many people are shocked to hear how much woody brows play a factor in the wintertime. You mean those same critters that were eating just the soybeans and the corn are now eating twigs? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, 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 the other day, this, this past weekend, I found a, a, a dead deer that had, I'm not sure what, why I died. It was just a skeleton left, but the contents of the rumen were there because um, scavengers had eaten up everything else, but the, the rumen contents were laying there in a big pile, you know? And uh, at first, at first, if you looked at it, you would have thought it was like old horse horse manure or something just it looks you know real green and i got in there and started picking it apart and and you can see fibers from um some sedges and, and other uh for like some forest forbs they were eating but they were eating a lot of fern actually in that in that forest that i was walking in and and um you know without doing that, any nutritional analysis of the fern it's hard to say why they were eating that over another thing but Deer know what they need and what they want, and, and I think what they want a lot of times is just a lot of variety. Yep, yep. Well, Mariah, this has been incredible. I know everybody's going to appreciate it, but before we end it, I want to just give you the chance. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to share with Indiana deer hunters or, or uh, express to anybody? Oh, you know, I uh, right now it's the end of season, and so – I, maybe deer isn't on a lot of people's minds. It, it's on my mind every every day. Deer management, obviously, and um, you know, already thinking about the 2021 season and what we want to accomplish with DNR. You know, in, in our management uh, of deer. And so, what comes <clears throat> what comes to my mind first and foremost is just CWD, and we're going to be doing surveillance this year, and um, any type of participation folks can help us with or any samples they're willing to submit is a huge help to us. We, we go through a lot of effort to uh, run check stations. We, we provide coolers across the state where folks can drop off their head and get it tested for chronic wasting disease, and that's completely free um, to the hunter. You can go online a few weeks later and check your test results if you type in your confirmation number. We try to make it as simple as we can for people. And uh, my, my, I guess, closing remark to everybody would be just, uh, you know, when it comes fall, please do everything you can to help us with that effort. That's, that's really a, a high priority, you know, for me at least moving forward is I want to I wanna be able to conduct CWD surveillance across the state. And the more participation that we get each year will only improve the quality of surveillance that we can do and, you know, whether how confident we can be in whether or not CWD is, is or isn't in an area. So that's something people can help us with, you know, directly this year. And then of course, following up, um, the survey data is also super helpful and, uh, and we'll be circling around to that again next February, um, as far as the deer management survey. And, uh, of course the after hunt survey is something that it's sent to everybody in their confirmation email. You get a link and, I would love to get more participation in that. That's, yeah. that's something I think we're really lacking is in the after hunt survey. And I would really love to boost those numbers because, you know, like I talked about earlier, the more respondents we get, the more powerful that data is in telling us about the population. That biological data is super important to us. And the more we get, it just adds value to the data set as a whole. So, um, yeah, any, any way people are, are willing to help us is uh, – is very welcome, very welcome, and uh, it's appreciated. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time. I'm sure we'll do this again. Um, the podcast is always here as an outlet for you to communicate to anybody for any reason that you have, and uh, we look forward to the next time we hear from you, Mariah. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ty. I have fun. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to that interview. Um, we are blessed to have such a motivated and knowledgeable young deer biologist on staff in this state and uh, i want to thank mariah for swinging by and uh, it's the first of many um after stopping the recording we we already talked about setting up some future 
discussions and uh, I will keep you guys all abreast of that and obviously when the deer summary comes out we'll, we'll discuss it here and I look forward to scheduling a few more. The integrated deer study that Purdue is doing, I've been in contact with them. I'm going to touch base with them again and try to set and uh, set a date in stone where one of them or multiple of them will come on the show and, and kind of just give us a summary and update of what they're doing over there. It's pretty incredible. If you go over to the, uh, the page that they have set up and look and see, they have over 2.2 million photos that have been uh captured during this study and they have over 675 cameras deployed uh, they got some statistics if you scroll down uh, just kind of after the brief summary of everything that they're doing so it's it's an interesting study and I, I look forward to uh, maybe unpacking that in the future as well but if you like what you have you have heard make sure you share it I have a feeling every deer hunter out there will be interested in at least one thing that Mariah touched on in this episode so please spread the word like subscribe to the podcast and uh, make sure that other deer hunters out there in the Hoosier landscape are tuning in. Thanks, everybody. God bless, and good luck out there.